Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. This is part three of a four-part series, which is part of our hashtag COVID heart series. We continue our discussion with two infectious disease experts, Dr. Natasha Cheetah and Dr. Saman Nematalahi from the Johns Hopkins Hospital. In this third part, we will learn more about the clinical presentation and diagnosis of COVID-19. Please be sure to tune into parts one, two, and four to learn about advice for the healthcare worker, data on emerging treatments, and the virology and epidemiology, respectively. This episode was recorded on March 27, 2020. As information rapidly evolves, please stay up to date with the most current guidelines. Please remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology in the COVID era directly from expert cardio nerds. And finally, non-cardiology providers are being asked to take care of cardiac patients in COVID units everywhere. The cardioners were called to action to develop a review series to help everyone better take care of these patients. We have answered this call by producing the Cardiovascular Fundamental Video Lecture Series on our YouTube channel. For example, tune in today to listen to a phenomenal talk on everything you need to know about atrial fibrillation management by Dr. Randerson Cardozo of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Similarly, get a high-yield refresher on the management of acute decompensated heart failure by Dr. Ballant Laxey from the Cleveland Clinic. Subscribe now for many more to come. Folks, we, the CardioNerds, are honored to promote the incredible effort of Get Us PPE, a nonprofit organization working hard to make sure that every healthcare worker is protected. Here is a story from one such provider stepping up to face COVID-19. Hi, guys. My name is Michelle Miles, and I'm a first-year emergency medicine resident. When I graduated from medical school almost a year ago, I never imagined my first year as a doctor would include battling a pandemic. More importantly, I never imagined my first year would include battling a pandemic with a shortage of PPE. I haven't used a paper bag since I was in elementary school when my mom used to pack me a lunch. But lately, a paper bag is my best friend. A paper bag keeps my PPE safe from the outside world for several days to weeks at a time. You see, the field of medicine as a whole is extremely lacking in the necessary resources we need to fight this pandemic. And that includes proper masks, proper gowns, and other essential personal protective equipment. Thus, we've resorted to brown paper bags to house our reused PPE, fearing that if our elastic finally gives way on our N95, we may not have enough resources to get another. My reason for talking about this is to bring to light the dangerousness that the field of medicine is facing in light of this shortage, and to encourage the general public to support us in putting pressure on our government to get us the equipment that we need. The equipment that is vital to our work and vital in keeping us safe and helping us to decrease transmission of this disease. Get Us PPE is an organization that was founded specifically to help with this advocacy and to help organize companies and individuals to donate their PPE to hospitals in need. While we've already had an amazing response, we still have quite a bit of work to do. Our request is this. If you have PPE at home, please donate it. 
If you're a company with the capacity to manufacture PPE, please do so. And if you have a voice you'd like to share, please advocate that our government increase the supply of PPE to all hospitals. To donate or get more information, please go to getusppe.org. Thank you. Our dear patient, Sarah S. Kovitz from episodes 19 and 20, presented a cardiology clinic with an impressive dry cough and fever at home after returning from a family cruise. Um, so what is the real typical clinical presentation we should be looking out for? Um, I've really been thinking of it as a respiratory virus, so thinking about respiratory symptoms, but there's a lot of talk out there about how GI complaints like abdominal pain um, and diarrhea are more common than previously thought. Yeah, that is a great question, Heather. So from what we know so far, there seems to be about a week gap between when symptoms start and when hospitalizations occur, and then also a week gap between where we have like mild presentations that then progress on to severe presentations. And it's thought so far that the first part of the syndrome is virally mediated during that first week. And then the second part is kind of like a cytokine storm with a robust immune response during that second week, which is really when also the presentation really worsens. So at first we thought it was just infecting older people, but now we have data that younger patients, you know, in the range from 20s to 40s are being infected as well with a high attack rate and high rate of mild and asymptomatic rate based on the South Korea experience. I will note that uh, one of the major differences between SARS-CoV-2 and the prior coronaviruses with SARS and MERS is that with SARS and MERS, we knew when people were infected because they had symptoms and got sick pretty fast. And so we were able to isolate them and we were kind of able to contain the spread of virus. However, with SARS-CoV-2, we're seeing a large amount of uh, mild and asymptomatic rate, which can enable the virus to transmit more readily, which I think why this has become a pandemic, at least one of the reasons. Saman, can we go through the breakdown of symptom presentations? What are the most common symptoms that these patients will typically present with? Great question, Corinne. Thank you for asking that. Based on the large case series that we've seen in several um, published data so far, we know that with respect to fever, about 40% or so on presentation will have fever, but most of these patients that do have um, SARS-CoV-2 will develop a fever. It's been cited about like 88%, or so will develop fever at some point during their presentation. Other common symptoms include cough and fatigue, Shortness of breath and dyspnea is cited anywhere between 20 to 50%, but the important thing with the dyspnea is that it usually occurs around days five to seven, so it's usually like a later onset of presentation for that. And as far as the URI symptoms, it seems to be less common, about like less than 15% as far as the congestion and sore throat. And what Heather had to mention as far as like the GI presentations, you know, this has been um, ongoing and different studies have mentioned different uh, percentages, but as far as respect to diarrhea and nausea vomiting, anywhere from 4% to about about 20%, so uncommon, but it still can be possible. And there's been lots of uh, stories on Twitter and on social media as far as this uh, anosmia and dyskusia. Uh, so it could be uh, due to persistence of like inflammation in the oral pharynx. And as we mentioned, most of this is anecdotal, though yesterday, March 26th in CID, there was a small published series of 59 patients that received a questionnaire about their symptoms. 
20 out of 59 of those patients, so 34%, reported at least one taste or olfactory disorder. And 11 patients, 20% had both. So we know that the prior SARS-CoV-1 is able to penetrate through the olfactory bulb. And we know that we have ACE2 receptors in the oral cavity. So as far as the pathogenesis and mechanism, it's uh, plausible. But we do see this with uh, other viruses. So it's not really a new thing. But I think just because this is obviously a pandemic and more widespread, this is getting a lot of attention. But the WHO is, is going to look comprehensively at all of this. Ugh, those ACE2 receptors are popping up everywhere these days. They're everywhere. Um, I also wanted to get your take on pregnancy in the era of coronavirus. There is such limited data that we have with regards to are pregnant women at increased risk? Is there a risk of vertical transmission? Are there any uh, anticipated adverse outcomes in the newborn child? What data do we know about this so far? Yeah, that's really a great question. We really have to be mindful of this because both SARS and MERS had worse outcomes in pregnancy, which is why this is getting a lot of attention. As of now, we do have very limited data and we don't have any proven vertical transmission. There were three reports that were just published yesterday, March 26th, and JAMA. Two of them were case reports and one of them was a small case series of about 30 patients looking at vertical transmission. And I think the issue is that there's quite a few issues in each of these reports. And so I think the jury is still out as far as uh, whether there is still vertical transmission. So we'll just need a lot more larger studies to really take a look at this to be able to say for sure whether there is a vertical transmission or not. So Saman, we've got a lot of patients in our ICU and, and really everywhere else. And a lot of times when patients come in very sick with any particular entity, a lot of times we're throwing everything like the kitchen sink at them, especially covering for sepsis. And that usually includes antibiotics. So what is actually going on with our COVID patients? Are they also uh, coming in co-infected? Is there a concern that we should prophylactically or empirically treat them with broad spectrum antibiotics? Is that the way to go? Or is this not happening? Great question, Dan. I don't think we know all of it at this point. I think based on what we know so far as respect to bacterial infections, we think that bacterial co-infections are very low, though when the patients first do come in, you don't know whether they are coming in with SARS-CoV-2 versus just the typical community-acquired pneumonia. So I don't think it's unreasonable to start empiric cap coverage because we just don't know what they're presenting with. Based on what we've seen so far, the bacterial co-infection rate is real low. With respect to viral co-infections, we know that from um, a small case series from Stanford, out of 49 patients that had positive SARS-CoV-2, about 11 patients, so about 20% of those patients had co-viral infections. And so about two of them had RSV, four of them had rhinovirus, and then about a, one of all the other viruses. Notably, none of them had flu, though we've heard anecdotally about one or two cases of co-infections with uh, flu and SARS-CoV. But these patients, you know, when they do get really sick and they're intubated in the ICU, they can develop VAPs and secondary infections over time in the hospital. So it's mindful to watch out for those just like in any other uh, sick patient in the hospital. Wow, Saman, thank you so much. That was really helpful. And, you know, some of these symptoms, and thinking back to Sarah Escovic, she definitely was a high risk in terms of her presentation with both exposures and her symptoms with fever, cough, and fatigue. But uh, actually, we didn't ask her if she had, what was it, uh, anosmia and dysgeusia? <laughs> but... 
Dr. Cheetah, as she's going to the hospital, could you walk us through some of the laboratory findings and the objective data that we should uh, be looking out for? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to know if we should be looking out for certain labs because what I'll say is that the lab findings we're seeing in these patients are nonspecific. So you're going to see them in folks who have sepsis from other reasons and inflammatory disorders and whatnot. But what we've seen is that in general, a lot of patients are presenting with lymphopenia and leukopenia. So in studies, so I'll, I'll say we have a lot of cohort studies now from mainly China, but now coming out of Europe as well. And it seems like up to 80% of patients may have lymphopenia or leukopenia. Mild elevations in AST and ALT have also been seen, uh, maybe up to two to three times the upper limit of normal, but significant uh, liver inflammation has not been seen. But that's being seen in about 4 to 30% of folks. Not surprisingly, we're seeing hot evidence of inflammation. So CRP tends to be high in, in people who are ill. LDH is also high in people who are ill as well. We also are seeing evidence of cardiac inflammation, which I think is of interest to you all, and that folks may come in with elevated troponins. And I think, again, this is just myocardial inflammation. Um, and then we're seeing things like D-dimers that are high, as well as IL-6s that are high. But what I will say is that in two um, larger cohorts, we didn't see a lot of evidence of DIC. So in one study with about, I think about 300 patients, they only saw DIC in maybe uh, three of those patients. So it was like 1% or less. Uh, So we're not seeing a lot of that, even though we're seeing some markers like ferritin and whatnot that may be elevated. Really appreciate that. Uh, Just a follow-up question about labs. Uh, Should we be sending IL-6? And also, should we be tracking any of these um, labs of inflammation to understand what's going to happen next with our patient or to change our management in terms of treatment or to phenotype the virus for them? It's a great question. And and what I'll say is that I'm of the mindset that we shouldn't get labs unless we're going to do something about it. So if you're at a center that is intentionally tracking these labs to try to get a better understanding of who are the patients that are going to go down, who are the patients that are going to develop ARDS and cytokine storm, then yes, I think as part of institutional guidance, I would get labs such as this, including IL-6. But just to get it for clinical management, I would not because we don't know what to do with the results. IL-6 is very variable across different labs. The turnaround time is also very variable. So again, if it's part of institutional guidance because there's an intentional purpose of tracking those labs for a better understanding of the disease, then yes, I would consider. But if you're just you know treating somebody and you get an IL-6 and it's high, I'm just not sure what you're going to do with that data because... At this point, we don't have a set of labs that inform us who's going to go down and who's going to be fine. We just don't know that yet. So I think, again, from a data gathering standpoint, to try to understand that as part of a of an intentional institutional plan, that's one thing. But for clinical management, I don't think it's ready for prime time. Okay, thank you very much for answering that. Let's move on to imaging because I've seen a lot of reports on social media, lots of different people reporting certain imaging findings. Specifically, I'm seeing with chest X-ray and CT, even people, uh, let's say surgeons reporting that their trauma patients are even showing up with certain CT findings that the radiologists are saying are consistent with COVID-19. So would you mind discussing a little bit about imaging and COVID and how we can use that to our advantage? Sure. I think it's a really important point because unlike labs where we're not entirely sure what different results mean, uh, I think imaging is actually coming along as being a really good tool to help us understand A, who may be infected and B, who may be progressing to more severe illness. So there's a fair amount of studies that have come out of China that have shown that 
the majority of patients who are ill enough to present to the hospital will have an abnormal CT, even if they're not very symptomatic. In a couple reports, every patient who came in had an abnormal CT. In others, it was about 70% of patients. There's also been smaller reports that have looked at people who initially presented with more severe findings on CT and whether or not they were more likely to progress to severe disease. And in a couple of smaller studies, it does seem that that's the case, that severity of chest imaging can correlate with progression to severe disease. Now, the difference here is that in China, they had dedicated CT scanners that they were using for COVID patients. From an infection control standpoint, that's been harder to do here. And so at Hopkins, where we have a lot of expertise with point-of-care ultrasound, there's actually been um, a lot of use of that. Now, in the literature, there's only a couple small case reports of what POCUS is showing. But at the institution, um, a couple of the providers who've seen the majority of our COVID patients here have been doing point-of-care ultrasound on every patient, and they are finding that most of them um, have abnormal uh, POCUS as well. So I think a negative CT in someone who's presenting with pretty clear symptoms of a viral infection would be a good marker that this may not be COVID. Is it enough to rule it out? Not yet. I don't think we have that information yet. But I think that a negative CT combined with, you know, a lack of fever and, you know, clear symptoms of strep throat, I think that would be enough to to make me less concerned for COVID. Just a quick shout out to Dr. Gigi Liu for really championing studying POCUS uh, and ultrasound, bedside ultrasound in COVID patients. Yeah, she's the one who's doing almost all the ultrasounding with Brian <laughs> here, Bobby. <laughs> So miscovids unfortunately developed critical illness with hypoxic respiratory failure and mixed shock. With greater than 590,000 infected cases worldwide, it's scary to think how such an illness, even in a small minority, would strain our systems, particularly with the current state use of military hospitals, deployment of naval ships in New York City. What do you expect in terms of how many will get severely or critically ill? That is a great question. I mean, I think there is a wide range of illness severity. I think about 80% or so will have mild symptoms and uh, severity of illness. About 14 to 15% will have some sort of moderate disease. And then about 5% will be critically ill, needing ICU level of care. And then of those patients being in the ICU in the large series, about 2 to 3% were vented. And overall, those patients, about 1.4% had passed. There have been other studies, uh, both of these in JAMA, looking at risk factors for both severe disease and ARDS. I'll first touch on severe disease. And so I think the most important thing that they had seen was age being the most prominent risk factor. And then the other ones being the other comorbidities such as hypertension, diabetes, um, malignancies, things like that. As far as risk factors for ARDS, again, older age comes to the top. And then they had also noticed some of the laboratory findings, some of which uh, Natasha had touched on, such as higher LDH and uh, higher D-dimer. But they also noted uh, higher Q-SOFA scores being a risk factor for ARDS. As with respect to mortality, again, we see um, higher mortality in the older patients, about uh, 15%, and also in the cancer patients, mostly because they do have a lot of uh, atypical symptoms, and uh, especially with lack of fever. But overall mortality from this so far, we have data showing that ranges from anywhere from 0.25% to as high as uh, 3 to 4%. And I'll, I'll just add in there that Italy's mortality rate seems to be higher in some provinces approaching 8%, but 
when we look at why that may be, it does seem that old, there are more older patients in Italy than there were in China. Uh, so far in the U.S., it seems like our mortality rate is around 1%. But I will also note that this is the mortality rate of people who were diagnosed, right? So we keep saying that there are folks who are mild symptoms, there are probably a, people with asymptomatic infections, so they're not being included in these mortality rates. Well, those numbers, especially when you scale to the population exposed altogether, are very sobering, especially within the high-risk groups. Returning to our case, Ms. Kovitz's initial PCR test in the emergency room was negative, but because her suspicion for her presentation was so high, uh, given her symptoms and exposure, and of course her course, we retested her and on day three, her test returned positive. So thank goodness her providers continue the use of proper PPE from day one. Would you mind walking us through your diagnostic algorithm and do you use clinical criteria if there's restricted testing? And when do we retest if PCR is negative, but the suspicion is high? And does imaging help in the scenarios? Yeah, great questions, Amit. I think, uh, unfortunately, overall, we have continued to have some um, issues with testing in the United States, and we're vastly under-testing due to, I think, a number of reasons. You know, we tried in the U.S., we tried to make and scale our own testing, but we had delays in that. Um, and then the FDA allowed local labs to try to do it, but then we needed to validate those testings, which led to further delay. And then the supply chain, we didn't have any more swabs and reagents. So all in all, we're having, as Peter Chen Hong says in Twitter, is just delay, delay, delay. Delay just seems to be the common theme uh, throughout here. Mm. In uh, South Korea, for example, they were, you know, they were testing about 700 times more people per capita compared to the United States. And, you know, in one day, they, they were had been able to test about 20,000 people where, you know, back in January, February into early March, we had done less than 10,000 tests throughout that two and a half month period. If we could test everyone, we would learn a lot about the disease, such as the disease spectrum and presentation and immunity. But unfortunately, we are not able to do that just yet. Briefly touching about the test characteristics of uh, these PCRs, it's hard to know for sure. We can't really say now whether we have like good sensitivity and specificity because we just don't have a good gold standard to compare these tests to. So it's just really hard for us to understand the full spectrum of this. I will say I think false positivities will be low just because these coronavirus primers are different. So the PCR testing is unlikely to cause much false positives. Everyone is really focusing in on this JAMA article where they looked at PCR positivity at uh, different sites, you know, with the BEL being the most positive at around 93%, and then with the nasal swabs being around 60 to 70%. But like I said, this there was no gold standard for this, and so it's just really hard to compare all this. And I think I also mentioned that technique is super important. So if you don't get enough sample with a nasopharyngeal swab, we will start to see false natives. And I'll plug in Francisco Marty's New England Journal procedural video here. Um, I think it's very high yield and it's very short and uh, quick. And I think everyone should be watching us as far as making sure we get really good sampling here. I think that's a great point because, you know, we've seen a lot about drive-through testing and we've seen a lot about why can't people do home testing. And those are great ideas if you can get it right. Um, but I think we need to make sure that if people are doing drive-through testing or home-based testing, then they should we need to make sure that they're sampling correctly. We want to have people who are good at getting samples in drive-through testing sites, not you know folks who aren't skilled at doing it, because that's going to cause a lot of false negatives and 
that could be a disaster. Uh, that's a really good point. So, Saman, is there a guideline in terms of a protocol for retesting in a diagnostic algorithm overall? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, each institution, you know, has their own algorithm based on the resources that they have. So I would uh, recommend uh, all the listeners here to just follow their institution's guideline as far as their algorithms, whether they have different ones for the outpatient versus the emergency departments. So I would just encourage everyone to review those. And I think it's a great question about the retesting. And so I think it really depends on a couple of things such as your pretest probability, you know, whether the patient is at home versus the ICU and whether they're either like a high risk transmission patient, such as someone that's a healthcare worker or someone, for example, is like an HD patient, where the sample was taken, if it was like a BAL versus a nasopharyngeal swab. So I think all these things are, um, are important to take into account. And so, you know, if your initial nasopharyngeal testing is negative and you continue to have a high index of suspicion in the setting of other tests being negative, I think you can re- we can consider retesting in about 24 to 48 hours. And I think, you know, some of the podcasts like Clinical Problem Solvers and Curbsiders where they've had Peter Shen Hong and Paul Sachs, they both allude to this thing as well, where you can retest within 24, 48 hours if you continue to have high index of suspicion. And I think that'll come into play more as, you know, influenza season goes down and we start seeing less and less flu and less and less other respiratory viruses. Like this has been a, it seems to have been a bad year for human metanumovirus as well. But as we move away from retroviral season, I think, you know, blaming people's symptoms on other viruses is going to be hard. And so you might see more retesting then. Great point, Natasha. Thank you. Yeah, that really is a great point. Uh, thank you so much for that. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks thank so you much for having Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Hi, Cardio Nerds. Danny Dimitriou, physician scientist at Columbia University in New York City here. Today, with most of my lab on complete shutdown and my normal 20% clinical time in the well baby nursery expanding to an all-consuming endeavor, my heart still flutters for new reasons now. It flutters because of being part of a most incredible team of New York Presbyterian, Columbia, and Wild Cornell physicians and scientists coming together in unprecedented ways to combat COVID-19. It flutters with gratitude that my family and friends are all safe. But today I want to focus on what makes my heart flutter in my capacity of a physician on the front lines of COVID-19. Unlike virtually all infectious diseases, we are not seeing too many sick kids. In our eight hospital system, we have seen a whopping 20% rate of COVID positive women in labor since our unbiased sampling started about 10 days ago. Yet since then, none of our newborns have been infected. And that makes my heart flutter. Stay safe, everyone.